Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we've got Mark Stubler with Joe Homebuyer. He flew in from Salt Lake City, Utah to talk about how he went from a sales job to wholesaling to launching a wholesaling franchise. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. Question I get all the time is how to become one of the 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough for you to become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, you will become one. If you want to get there faster, send me a DM on Instagram and there we'll see if we can help you or not. If you get value out of the show, please tag your friend below, share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. You ready? Let's go. All Thanks right. for having me, Steve. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so the first question is what got you into real estate? Man, I had a gig that was a, actually a really rewarding job. I worked for a company for 11 years, but it was selling fencing and decking. So nothing to do with uh, real estate at all. I did, however, try one time a rehab with a buddy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, several years back. And we couldn't sell it, so we were, we were compelled to keep it as a rental. So that was all I knew about real estate before I actually got into it. Well, that's the classic <laughs> story, right? Like, it was a good deal. Well, it wasn't that good deal, so we're going to rent it out. And like, <laughs> right. now it's like, well, if I can't... Now it's not even like we can rent it out. It's like you can turn it into a group home or you can turn it into, right. I think the last thing now is an Airbnb. Yeah. Right. Something to just salvage <laughs> the deal, right? And yeah. here's the funny thing, and you could say this about how many properties, but had I kept it today, like what it would be worth today, right? But oh, obviously man. we got out of it eventually and, and you know, wiped our foreheads and said, hey, we survived to tell the tale type thing. Yeah, no, yeah. there's a lot, of, a lot of those properties. Uh, so when was this that you were working your sales job? So actually six years ago is when I took the entrepreneurial journey with Cody Hoffine. Okay. He and I partnered up and started wholesaling in Salt Lake. Got and it. it was one of those things where I love to tell the story. So I'm working for a company, great company. And I got to the point where, you know, I really knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but it wasn't until they told me I had to come into the office for four hours a week to be a, I refer to it as a pencil sharpener, but they took away my autonomy. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those experiences where Believe it or not, it, it turned a switch. It flipped a switch of like, no, 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 I don't work for myself. I don't have as much of flexibility as, I, as I'd like. And it was pushed me into gear to leave working for somebody and start my own business. So Cody and I stayed in touch. We were buddies. And uh, we decided, hey, let's uh, take this on together to see what we can do uh, in Utah. And we were able to create a pretty special company pretty quick in the Salt Lake market. Now, Cody has privately shared with me that you are the brains behind the operation. <laughs> he's the he's the beauty. I, I'm the bronze, <laughs> however that goes. I think. No, Cody's fantastic, and anybody that knows Cody, he you know puts his heart into everything he does. But he was we were able to divide and conquer. He yeah. was able to go do coaching, and I was able to run the operations, and we were able to really let two businesses grow in parallel to each other. Yeah. So it's it's been awesome. So then, is that the same time that Cody started? Yeah, he started a few months before me. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it, 2015, 2016. And you guys initially partnered up from the get-go. No, he was doing it. And then he actually uh, was a good enough friend to say, bro, you really got to get into this real estate, mm -hmm. which was cool. He didn't hold it to himself. He said, hey, no, 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 there's enough for, for both of us. You got to try this out. I tried it out for a few months, and then it became clear very quickly that, hey, we can... Uh, make this happen together and uh you know so we just decided to partner up at that point but he had been doing it just a few months and just got exceptional results right off the bat how did you guys approach that conversation because there's a lot of people right now you know and i see this on a regular basis and i don't generally encourage it um but like you know you got two buddies we're wholesaling what are you doing what am i doing and then at some point it's like does it make sense to partner right how did you guys approach that conversation that's a tough one 
because uh, you know Cody says the 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 whole quote that uh, you know partnerships uh, are like boats normally uh, or they you know they don't necessarily float right mm-hmm. they don't succeed and in our case it's worked because we have different strengths he's the promoter he's a visionary I've been an implementer uh, in in a lot of applications of the business and so for whatever it worked but your specific question like. How did that conversation go? I just had a high level of trust. Our families were friends. Our wives had a connection. It became clear that if I was going to, you know, run with somebody, it needed to be somebody that I felt like I knew outside of business. I knew their character outside of business. And so that's the conversation I would maybe challenge a listener to is if you're thinking of going into business with somebody, how do they conduct themselves when they're, you know, when the heat's on, when they're with their family, you know, some of those real life applications. Mm -hmm. And I felt like with Cody, you know, I knew him outside of the business world, outside of finances, and I knew that uh, what type of character he was. Yeah, you know, and I think that's great because you guys were friends beforehand. One of the things I always look for when I'm meeting somebody, not, not partnership, but just in general, if I want to associate with myself with this person, is when we go to lunch and you see how they treat the host ah, or the server. Good. You know, that's just one <laughs> of those things that you kind of get a, like, do they treat everyone nicely or do they only treat people that they need to get something from nicely? Well um, said. All right, so... Six years ago, as you guys decided to join forces, start doing this, what was your first deal? Seeing as how he was already doing deals, what was your first deal like? I'd love to tell you this story, man. So everybody says that whole cliche answer, your first deal is your hardest. And <laughs> I, I don't know that that, I mean, that's absolutely true. So I remember the house that I went to was, a, was actually a townhome, sitting down with a great family, husband and wife couple. The home had uh, become, uh, you know, a little bit dated and distressed. They hadn't taken care of it, but they were just in financial bind. They, got, they had to clear their slate of some of their financial issues. I was there for four and a half hours. And here's the best part, Steve. I left because they were humming and hawing about it about three hours in. They said, why don't you... Uh, you know, I could tell they needed to think about it and they weren't quite ready to make a commitment. And again, I came from an industry, although I was selling fencing and decking, I was used to sitting people in their living room and selling them a product. This is a little different and a lot longer. So I'm here for three, four hours. And I I said, all right, let me, I've got to run an errand anyway. Uh, Let me, you know, give me just uh, a little bit of time. I'll let you guys digest the idea. They also wanted to call a family member. So get this, I come back and they call me like five minutes before I get there. And I just had this hunch. I'm like, uh, I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to show up. They get, they, whatever they're going to tell me, they got to tell me face to face. Show up, knock on the door. And they're like, oh, we left you a message type thing. They were trying to call off the dogs. They were trying to say, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about this another time type thing. And ultimately what they were saying is, we just can't get there yet. We're not, we're not comfortable. And it was because they couldn't get a hold of her, her brother-in-law and they just wanted to feel at peace that, hey, they were making the right decision. Well, we waited around a little longer. The brother-in-law came over. We hosted a party talking about buying the house. After about four hours, they were able to get to a point. Of, Another four hours? No, total. total. Okay. <laughs> four hours in total, we were able to get to a point uh, that they were able to feel comfortable that, hey, you know, you know, getting out of the home, moving on, transitioning in their life was, was a win for them. And they felt like they could trust me at that point. They got to a level that they said, all right, this guy's providing a solution for us. And they got the blessing from somebody that they trusted that knew a little bit about real estate mm-hmm. and we were able to rock and roll. But it was, it was not your, you know, you know, walk in the park type scenario. It, it definitely took a, a lot of hustle. Well, so how did your experience selling decking and fencing before translate into that appointment and subsequent appointments so when i'm looking to hire an acquisition guy this is the very answer i look for people that have experienced transactional sales you know this idea that turning a no into a yes mm-hmm. uh, as i'm thinking of uh you know somebody that is experienced knocking on a door getting initial rejection but having to be a warm receptive person 
that they invite in. And so sitting down with people talking about any product in my mind is a great catalyst for helping you succeed in real estate. You know, it's just a different product, right? right. Um, but I will tell you the underlining theme, and this is sales 101, so I'm not gonna say anything that anybody, but I'll emphasize it because I truly believe it, is are you willing to connect with the sellers? Are you willing to make a human connection where you're willing to solve their problem? You know, in fencing world, the problem was maybe safety for their kids or just, you know, wanted more privacy. But in real estate, there's you know endless amounts of problems, issues. If you're actively committed to connecting with them, making that human connection, and you're committed to solving their problems, I'm absolutely convinced that that is the, the you know the most important component for a successful salesperson. Um, as you're looking at that aspect of stuff, that's why I translated so well because I had a good time visiting with people about fencing and decking, and I had a great time talking to people about real estate. Yeah. So you're looking for someone that's got a history of getting their door slammed in their face. Yes. And yeah. the ability to build empathy and connection. That's right. That's huge. How are you finding those people? It's not easy. And I think it's important you know that it's not easy. Because if you think that, all right, I'm going to put a, uh, an offering out there on LinkedIn or, or, or Indeed, or I'm going to try to recruit, uh, and then I'm going to have that guy tomorrow, you're mistaken. Yeah, oh yeah. It can be a process of, you know, several months, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, I obviously start with network. Now you think, well, you know, your network can't, be endless. But yeah, over the years, we continue to reach out to people we know that are in sales positions, who's a, a successful sales guy that you know. Uh, but I always start with network to really try to the sniper approach, find somebody that is maybe a friend of a friend that's been successful at sales. Um, but obviously knowing what you know about door to door, getting the door something in the face, what you know, settings can you put yourself in to find people that are, have, have been in door to door sales? Um, or you know, who, who do you know that knows those people? Mm -hmm. So those are the type of things that I do. And then just with the mindset of, hey, a quality acquisition guy, a quality sales guy can literally transform your business. It's worth the hustle to do it. It's going to be as hard to find somebody, at, you know, the work that goes in is worth uh, the investment. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that's, as someone newer in wholesale, I mean, someone has been doing this for a while, they understand this, but someone newer, they underestimate how hard it is to find a good salesperson. Right. Because we're crazy and we're we don't conform. We don't follow right. processes. Right. Right. And so, I mean, look at what caused you to flip the switch. I need to come into the office. Right. <laughs> Screw that. that <laughs> That's all it took, man. They're like, you've been here for 10 years and we made you come in for four hours and you're out the door. Yeah. Yeah. So salespeople are generally crazy. So I, I love that. All right. So then that was your first one, four hours. You locked it up, closed it. What was the rest of your beginning journey like? So I learned a lot of lessons, right? I mean, you have to, you learn a lot of lessons right mm -hmm. off the bat. Like the first three deals that I did, I assigned for $10,000 each. Now the irony is, had I known what I know now, maybe one would have been worth a lot more than that, uh, or maybe all three. But I was just, I was just, all right, I put a value, I put a price tag on each one. And I, I undersold really the value that I created. I remember my second deal was a home that ended up having to get, divided to be a split home. Sounds crazy, but in essence, it's just a ton of work for the buyer to get it. Uh, and, and I think in today's world, like even my buyer's list today, I'm like, I don't know how I moved that. I'm not convinced that I could even move it today. It was so <laughs> random. But yeah, just a lot of, um, you know, the journey in the early days was each property provided that powerful education, right? I think so many times we're like, well, when this happens, 
I'll do this. Um, and it's one of those things where in real estate, you just got to get after it. You got to learn on each one. Uh, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to leave money on the table. Um, and the other thing is stay hyper-focused. The one thing I've learned in the early days is we didn't try to take on rehabs. We didn't try to take on hotels. We just stayed in our lane and built the cash reserves, learned what we could learn. And not until we could take on some of those things without it being a distraction, did we monkey with any other aspects of real estate. Got it. Um, what were some of the early struggles, uh, and, you know, when you guys were, were launching five, six years ago? Uh, it makes me think of uh, leadership. Uh, it makes me think of, I've had some people that un weren't honest with us. So we had some cold callers, a whole group of them. And they actually like colluded and like, hey, this is the, the nuance. This is how you say you're working and don't actually have to work. I yeah. mean, in essence, they had talked just enough to realize, hey, this is how you make it look like you're making calls and that type of thing. And so come to find out, we had people, you know, that, so one of the struggles I think is simply that I wasn't, I wasn't really the leader that I needed to be in terms of both inspiring them, but also holding them accountable. I think mm -hmm. those are two critical components. Like I needed to hold them accountable and actually make sure that they knew that what they were doing was meaningful. I put them in a position where they, they, they realized they could get away with marginal activity at first. And then it probably led from that to, I can get away with not doing anything sometimes. Right. And that was bad leadership. So that's the lesson I learned is the better leader that I've become. And obviously that's a you know, perpetual journey. It's an ongoing thing. Oh yeah. But the better leader that I've become, I attract better people. And I'm also putting myself in a position where I'm, I'm, I'm helping them succeed because I'm holding them accountable. I'm inspiring them. And so leadership is what I think of uh, as you ask that question. Uh, locally or virtual? Uh, locally is when are you specifically when I'm hiring? The one, the, the one that you had people that were colluding. Dude, that was local. These are people that we met <laughs> weekly, hung out in the office. Yeah, they. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because I hear about this on the virtual side. I'm, it's crazy that it happened in your own office. Yeah. Um, Never would have guessed it. So accountability is one of those things that we all have challenges with. Um, Right. Like, how do you have these difficult conversations like, Joe, why are you not making your dials? Right. All right. Mark, what's going on? I saw you clocked out at 430 yesterday. How are you approaching those conversations? Because those are difficult conversations that are required by leadership slash management. Well, it's earned, right? Like, I can't go have a tough conversation with somebody if I haven't earned it previously in mm. terms of, uh, you know, how I treat them. Am I interested in other aspects of their life? Um, am I inspiring them? Have, have I earned almost like that, uh, that bucket? Have I made enough deposits into that account of, you know, building trust and, and a meaningful relationship so that when something, you know, sticky comes up, I can go to them. You know, I had an experience with one of my acquisition managers lately, uh, recently. And I mean, I have a great relationship with him. I care a lot about him. I care a lot about his family. I hope he senses that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just face value, but I hope he actually feels that I, I care about it. It's him. not empty words. Yeah, it's not empty words. And so when that sticky thing, you know, topic comes up, specific about, you know, uh, his interest in, in doing his own investing type thing, it was, you can have these tough conversations and use soft language type thing or, or soft tone, I guess is the other way to say it. And that was something a mentor shared with me is just the ability that sometimes you have to have these meaningful, tough, accountable type questions, but you can do it using kind of a soft tone. And, and it can be almost a, a very direct, like, dude, you screwed up on this. Mm -hmm. But when you're coming from a place of, hey, they, they know, you know, 
deeply how you feel about them, then you can get away with, uh, in my mind anyway, yeah. that's according to Mark Stubler, uh, how I've handled it. And I'm grateful that I have good you people. You got a lot more leeway, well. a lot more, uh, was it runway to run on before you run out? Yes. All right. So then was there a point where you guys bottomed out or is there any major struggles you and Cody in, in your journey? You'll get a kick out of this. So we're in business for one year. We're killing it in Utah. So we have it all figured out. We're young, geniuses. dumb, and I, we're geniuses. <laughs> so we decide, year two, we're going to go to Indiana. And we're going to do the exact same thing. Because that's what every reasonable business owner does, is you have one year of success. And <laughs> you got to go virtual. That's sexy. Yeah, that's sexy. So that's yeah. what we do. And ironically, we started making money in Indiana. Mm -hmm. But we started losing money in Utah because we lost focus. And so that was a struggle. We realized that we tried to expand before we had the infrastructure to do so. That was an early lesson that we learned that we needed to develop, you know, a baseline. Plus, we had a lot more market share in Utah to capture before we actually, you know, had any business going outside of Utah. Was there a certain event or how did you guys come to realize that, yeah, you're making money over here, but you're losing opportunity over here? What, how did you see that? It was the trends. Uh, we could see that we've had success, you know, uh, previously, fairly consistently over about a 16, 18 month period. And all of a sudden those, those, yeah, the, the revenue per month was dropping mm -hmm. and it was distraction. We, we tried, we spread ourselves too thin. How long until you guys cut off Indiana? We were there about six months. Okay. So you saw fairly quickly then it, it seems yeah. like, Hey, this, we're, we're not going the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you have, um, any, anybody over there or is it all in Salt Lake? So we had uh, boots on the ground that would do just, you know, rudimentary type tasks. Uh, and that was actually part of, uh, part of the reason that it was a distraction in Utah because we didn't set it up right. We didn't know what we didn't know at the time. We didn't have a rock solid uh, person on the ground in Indiana. So it required more of our time and attention. That's where the distraction came. Had we had somebody and understood the value of really a key player out in Indiana, it probably would have afforded us to manage both. But it was, we were being pulled in that direction. Got it. So then was it you keep an eye on the bottom line or is there someone else, uh, counsel, coach, mentor, somebody? Like how did you get the wherewithal, the presence of mind to, to figure that out? Yeah, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, but I, I definitely am uh, very aware of you know the finances, our KPIs. I, I wanna know what we're producing weekly and monthly, uh, a blessing I, or, you know, I curse, I joke because, you know, I'm very much am, uh, interested in those things and probably, uh, at an extreme level at times, but I understand that, you know, we've got to keep the momentum going. And so mm -hmm. I, I keep a pretty close eye on KPIs. Yeah. Well, and that's good. Right. And I think that's great that you and Cody work together because Cody is out here. He's off. <laughs> right. And he's going hundred miles an hour yeah. at all times. Right. Right. And you're over here, like keep an eye on the bottom line, because if you don't, no one is right and I, I think a lot of, even though i always you know people think i discourage all partnerships um i think that it's hard for a solopreneur to grow while maintaining right right so it's it is a, you say it might be a little bit of a curse but it's a blessing that you're able to monitor because who knows how long that could have gone right it's like why are we not doing more in indiana while right salt lake's going down and again cody and i counseled so we looked at the numbers and that's why our partnership has been so valuable is he has you know, great insight as a visionary. He understands business. He's very, um, he has, you know, just great instincts that way. So we, you know, we talked and it's like, look, what do you think we do? And we were able to just have an honest conversation with each other. It looks like, you know, ever since this, this is this, I mean, it became pretty black and white at that point, but mm -hmm. we've been able to, I mean, we, we 
crunched the numbers together and, and uh, settled on the fact that, hey, let's, there's a lot more opportunity in Utah. Let's worry about another market down the road. Yeah. We ended up going to Dallas two or three years after that, but it wasn't until our infrastructure was sound. And it's still up and running. Yes. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So we figured it out. Right. Uh, so we're talking about this, the sound infrastructure, right? The foundation, which is kind of, I mean, eventually it's what you ended up franchising. So right. let's talk about someone here who's, they're doing a couple of deals a month. How do they build out their business more or less in a box, kind of like you, you've done? Like, how do they, what's the first step in building out the systems and processes to build a replicatable business or a repeatable business? Yeah, so a lot of, uh, you know, wholesalers in general, real estate investors, their biggest issue that I've observed is not uh, being consistent. Uh, consistent with their marketing, uh, consistent with, you know, their marketing spend or, or even their approach. And what it looks like is, you know, they, they open up a website, they start putting a little bit of fuel behind it with marketing, and then it doesn't experience the success or they have initial success, but then it kind of peters out. And so, so does their commitment to that. So then they try something else. And, you know, the Joe Homebuyer system, you know, understands that there's ebbs and flows in, in marketing and business in general. Yeah. So we have a very uh, diversified but consistent marketing approach. We want to hit multiple channels, but consistently. You have to be prepared to ride out the marketing so that you can see the highs and the lows, mm -hmm. but then as you average it out over the course of time, you've been able to receive the fruits of, of consistency. So consistency, in my mind, is one of the most fundamental um, aspects that wholesalers miss in general, because they they get discouraged. I mean, it's a big deal. You spend ten thousand dollars in marketing, and you're out of cash, or you're worried about the cash. Mm -hmm. And and it's different than buying. You know, of other businesses, you might buy. You know, Subway. You might buy sandwich meat and bread. And all. At least you see something when you spend ten grand. It's sometimes hard, right? Yeah. You spend ten thousand on marketing, and you're like, Where is it? Where is it? Yeah. <laughs> you have phone numbers. It's a sickening feeling for people, and so they have to have, you know. And that's what I like about uh, Joe is is we're able to help people navigate some of the emotion of that. Help them navigate some of the, you know, hey, you know, it's calculated. We have mm -hmm. data that we can leverage and say, no, collectively, this is what we get when we stay consistent. And that's coupled with lead management as well. I mean, I don't care how good your marketing is. You have to obviously, there's back ends of the company, lead yeah. management and, and things like that that are going to be instrumental to making sure the marketing works. But uh, consistency is the underlying theme in my mind that that is a missing component for a lot of business owners. But let's say someone wasn't necessarily interested in franchising, right? Like they just wanted to build out a business. Yeah. Right. So like, what is the first step? And I want to just like really go rudimentary, really super basic. What are the first few steps for building out the systems and processes that you can have a repeatable business that does not rely, you know, uh, on the business owner being present at all times? Okay, so let's dive into this. So what are those things that they can do to build out their business? For me, it's obviously you have to have clarity on what you're trying to accomplish, right? What is what am I trying to do from a revenue you know, perspective? Mm -hmm. What do I want to accomplish? And then reverse engineer it, right? putting together a marketing plan and then who's going to go see through, you know, managing the leads and the acquisitions. Um, you know, for me, it's doing as many of the income producing activities as possible, right? So sure you want to have a good CRM, but really start with the most elementary CRM, something that is just, you know, shy of Brent Daniels and I had a good conversation today. He had literally had one of those accordion files and, and he used it, but it worked <laughs> it, for the dude. It works for Brent. It works, right? And so uh, find a system that works for you. And that ultimately is not an income producing activity, a CRM. No, it's not. So although you need to have a system, 
you need to have it so that it functions for you. But on the extreme opposite, some people will invest hours and hours and financially invest in CRMs. And it's like, you don't even have leads coming in yet. Mm -hmm. So it's having crystal clear, you know, what are the income producing activities and put most of your activity, most of your energy should go towards those. And that could just be as simple as, all right, what is my marketing plan? Well, I don't have a, a huge budget, so I'm gonna do grassroots activities. I'm gonna drive for dollars, I'm gonna knock on doors. I'm just gonna call people. And the crazy thing is if you take that action consistently enough, you're gonna produce results. Absolutely. You'll find success. Yep. But it's, it's, again, goes back to that consistency. A lot of times you fall short because you get discouraged. It's hard. It is hard. It's simple, but it's hard. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the other things I'm going to talk about later on um, is that wholesaling is really simple. Yes. <laughs> but it's not easy. So, not easy. All right. So CRM, doesn't matter what it is, right? And that's one of the questions you get. Like, what CRM should you use? Like, I don't care. Right. <laughs> Just go out there and talk to people. Right. Right. Do the Brent Daniels thing. So right. you're, you're talking to people. You're getting opportunities. You close your first deal. Right. Let's say $10,000. Yep. What do you do after that? Well, in a perfect world, you're not having to use any of that money for, to put bread on the table type thing. Right. Right. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that you've got something sustaining yourself. When I started, I still kept my fencing and decking job for, as a sales guy for about six months. And, you know, I, I took some, uh, I, I uh, made hay, well, it was a uh, sunny type thing. I, I had to get in the grind doing both things, right? Yep. It wasn't easy. But um, hopefully you can re reinvest all that money back into your business. And for me, the lifeblood is marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I utilize this cash now, this gift of $10,000, which again, we haven't talked a ton about. Obviously, that's why your listeners are, are um, in real estate because it's just a, an incredible industry to be in the industry that can afford you so much opportunity so quickly. Um, I mean, it doesn't, again, it's not easy, but real estate is really just a, a beautiful thing in the sense that you can put a lot of work in and the return that you can get quickly. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know of another industry that can afford you such a great return uh, and such a rewarding return so quickly. So with that $10,000, you got to get to work to, to really put it to work for you as best you can. Mm -hmm. And that includes more of the same activities and just turn that dial a little bit. Just increase the amount of calls you're making. And if you can leverage a VA to help with calls, if you can uh, send a few more postcards to highly targeted lists, these activities, you just have to commit to, I'm going to reinvest because again, I started with clarity. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm trying to accomplish. So that it's pretty clear. Although this money is in my pocket, I'm not using it for any other purpose than to continue to work towards the goal that I've set out to do. So you can increase your activity or, or leverage your activities with, with your first deal. Absolutely. Okay. So then since you were the integrator, right? Like what were the first key systems you put in place so that you and Cody weren't going crazy? Yeah, right off the bat, we had somebody, an admin, and she managed the VAs, and she would do all the things that really were important to get done, but weren't maybe mine and Cody's strengths, the activities that none of us want to do. Mm -hmm. But she was... Uh, and definitely not income activities. And definitely not income generating activities. You know, so any of those types of things. You know, even just setting up the marketing or um, retaining list and working with the VA. Uh, we were able to put um, a, a gal by the name of Jordan uh, on that task. She worked from home. She was fantastic. Uh, she was somebody that was pretty versatile, so she could be given lots of different tasks and didn't get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But that afforded us the ability to, Cody did a lot of the disposition in the early days, I did a lot of the acquisition, and we were able to just go out and kill it. And then pretty quickly after that, we brought on a inexpensive 
uh, inbound, somebody that received leads, somebody that was just a pleasant voice on the phone. They weren't a killer salesperson. They made 12 or $14 an hour, but they just liked being part of something that was growing and they wanted to answer the co yeah. uh, call. So really our first year, that was us. Me, Cody, acquisitions, dispositions, um, and we had an admin and VAs, but I count really the admin really as one employee with the VAs and somebody helping with calls. And yeah. we were able to do a ton of deals. I love the idea that you were the integrator and the acquisitions. <laughs> and that's not a normal right. two hats for one person to wear. Uh, so going back to earlier, we we're talking about wholesaling is simple, but it's not easy. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, but anything that's super rewarding, let's be honest, something that's super rewarding, it's rewarding because you had to be in the grind. You had to put on the gloves. You had to work hard towards it, right? Mm -hmm. I think of, um, you know, observing like an acquisition manager getting their first deal, or in my case, one of our franchisees getting their first deal. They obviously cram their brains with everything they need to learn. They set up the infrastructure of the business and now they invest in marketing, right? And to see a deal and you know, bring revenue to their company is like the most rewarding thing. And it's rewarding because they invested a lot. Mm -hmm. they, they, I mean, include not just financially, but the time and heartache and all the leads that didn't go well. We had one of our franchisees this week, uh, of last week, he put three uh, contracts together last week. And then he finds out this week that two of them are, you know, blowing up because of title issues. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's what it means by it's simple. You've got to stay consistent. You got to, you got to work hard, but you have to be prepared that there's some, some ebbs and flows. There's some highs and lows. It's a roller coaster at time. Super high highs and super low lows. It is, man. You can have the most incredible return. Everything's on fire. And then next thing you know, it, like it's awful, right? I remember we had one month where... We were crushing. It's like we got 140,000 on the board, right? Right. And that 140,000 in like a matter of a week turned into like 40,000. Like that. It was like that, right? And it was just a couple of deals that went sideways right. and like, oh man, we're going to finally hit our first six figure month. Right. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of an ego blow. Yeah. So, um, and then you're going back to your, your sales approach, you know, I think it's fascinating that you don't preach making offers. I don't. I know that's not popular in the world. Well, um, I'm also in the minority with you on that. So, but I'd love to hear more about this. Yeah, for me, I'm not in the business of uh, making offers. I'm in the business of buying houses. And so when I'm working with the seller, I'm doing everything I can to not make it about price or the house, in fact. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to make it about them and helping them find a solution for their, you know, whatever's going on for them. You know, and, and the home is a byproduct of that. And certainly that's why we're meeting. And, and obviously you ask the questions, you know, condition and you, you tour the home when you show up. But at the end of the day, it really is about what are you going to do to help them solve their problem? Because if you can solve their problem, that's the underlining uh, solution for and building that that will ultimately build your, your, your connection. Mm -hmm. So as I'm visiting with the homeowner and they say, hey, what's your number? It's Mr. And Mrs. Seller. At the end of the day, I'm here to help you move on to plan B. Are you ready to make an agreement, uh, you know, put an agreement together if we're able to come up with a favorable number? And if they're not willing to sell their home today or, or execute in that way, I'm not ready to sell, give them a price because I'm not interested in putting my number out there. I'm interested in buying their house when they're ready and if I can provide them value. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And that's something that, again, we harp a lot on in our uh, sales process, right? What we train is that we don't give an offer 
until they're ready to sign. And I think that's one of the biggest rookie mistakes that most, like a very high percentage of wholesalers make is sharing that number and then... It's leveraged against them. Leveraged against them. And it's uh, the example I always like to use is um, uh, when I bought my Honda Accord, right? I mean, I had all the dealerships shopping against each other. Right. And like, it sucks, right? For all the dealers. <laughs> but that's what's happening to us. Right. When we're just leaving our offers out there. I love that you share that uh, because it's very common in the real estate world. Offers, offers, offers is a quantity thing. And mm -hmm. I just don't adopt that logic at all. Yeah. And it's not that it doesn't work. It's just not our approach well said yeah so then what prompted you to do the franchise thing because there's only there's only one other person i know that has a franchise so what prompted you to do the franchise thing because well let me qualify that most people say wholesaling is not a sellable business sure but if you can sell a franchise sounds like it is a sellable business it becomes a sellable business when you put it wrap it into a brand now yeah. the brand means something and it gives you the ability to sell the business. And we chose franchising because I felt like it was the best platform to become partners and to really create running mates throughout the country that we could help them really become myself and Cody in their market. Mm -hmm. Because the biggest issue with the wholesaler is they have ongoing questions, ongoing struggles. And what's the best system out there to help them navigate the ongoing you know, struggles with the business. A partner, somebody that's invested in their success. I don't make money in the real estate game really and truly until they're succeeding, until my franchisees are out there really building meaningful businesses. And so I do, we do everything we can to build a platform so that they succeed. And I love the partnership model where mm -hmm. they know that I'm invested in their success and that their win is our win and then we can celebrate that together. And it, it becomes a meaningful relationship in that, in that way. Got it. So you're still actively involved, or you are actively involved in all the franchise franchises? As best as I can. Absolutely. As we continue to grow, it's going to get harder and harder, but we have great people on our team mm -hmm. that to have the same interests that I do and that are actively helping get the, you know, if there's an answer, we're there to help them. If they need help scaling their business, we have a great team to help them scale their business. All right. So I've got... Um, selfish question here. Like, let's pretend I wanted the franchise, right? Let's do it. So what do I need to do if I wanted to create a franchise from scratch, right? Like I want to do a real estate disruptors podcast franchise, just hypothetically. Sure. Right. Sure. What's the first step if I want to start a franchise? If you want to start a franchise? Yeah. Uh, so in the franchise world, it's heavily regulated. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's wild, Steve. Like the hoots you have to jump through. Yeah. Basically, you have to tell any franchisee um, everything they're signing up for, whether it's a Subways or, or a Papa John's or whatever it is, uh, the FDD, the, the franchise disclosure document, is where you start. You have to have a quality attorney that says, I'm committed to creating this document that helps the franchisee know exactly, candidate, mm -hmm. the franchisee candidate, know exactly what they get when they buy this box system of uh, real estate investing or whatever it is. And, the, I mean, it's it's an investment with a, a, a qualified real estate professional, or not real estate, excuse me, uh, attorney mm -hmm. that is specialized in, in franchising. All right, someone that knows all the hoops, language, whatever. And yeah. even though they're using a boiler template that they've done over and over again, they're gonna start, still charge you somewhere in the neighborhood of like thirty to $50,000 right. to put the document together. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're not gonna do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're not gonna do it for you. How long was that process? For us, it took about a year and a half. A and it and didn't half. have to take that long, but it was really building out uh, I mean, maybe from vision to execution was a year and a half, but it was, you know, we didn't necessarily start the FDD day one. It was 
What is it going to take to really build a system that our franchisees can thrive in? And I talked with lots of other, you know, with connections through Cody and, you know, I, I was able to pick the brain of a lot of successful franchise, or excuse me, a lot of successful real estate investors. And, you know, you have those natural things. Well, what do you do when one of your franchisees is struggling? And if they don't validate well and they're mad at you and type thing, it, it can all implode very, very quickly. And so we really tried to just be methodical as we were starting the franchise. What is it actually going to take to build a meaningful system that others could leverage and build, you know, uh, viable businesses out of? And so it was from vision to execution was probably a year and a half. But as far as building out the documents and all that, you know, several months. But gotcha. it, it's a process. And the first franchise, they're kind of like the pioneer. They maybe don't really get the benefit of the brand name. Sure. The 50th guy <laughs> gets all that credibility. And we'll be there this year. I think we'll hit 50 this year. That'd be incredible. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So like what value, like how, how are you providing value to the franchisees as far as a brand goes? Like, you know, you see some of these guys like Homevestors, right? I mean, you get that ugly cave guy, yeah, whatever. Right. He's, he's yeah. everywhere. What are you doing to build a franchise brand? Yeah, and you guys aren't on the Super Bowl commercials. We're not on the Super Bowl commercials yet. I was thinking about taking off my shirt in this podcast or something, really building the brand. No, it's a process. It's going to take a lot of time. In the meantime, what are we doing to provide each of our franchisees value? And really, it's different for everyone. You know, actually, uh, on Brent Daniels' podcast today, he's actually a Joe Homebuyer franchise. Mm. And what he gets from Joe Homebuyer is completely different than, you know, somebody else in the sense that they might need from beginning to end everything. We have other experienced real estate professionals that convert their business to the Joe Homebuyer model. And at the end of the day, everybody has a little different. For a lot, it's acquisition support. We're really big on the acquisitions. We train the acquisition managers, we bring them in, and we really try to indoctrinate them in the best practices to maximize revenue, right? Yeah. So for some, it's acquisition support. Uh, we, in fact, we just had a great uh, candidate in um, uh, Will in Florida who bought a couple territories, and that was what was most attractive to him, is he, wanted to you know leverage our experience with acquisitions he's an incredibly successful business guy in fact he had another business and sold it and now he says all right well if i'm going to get into real estate i want to do it with joe homebuyer because i can leverage i can leverage what they know about acquisitions and apply and have my team leverage it as well yeah you know so it's different for every franchise in terms of what value they get from uh, specifically from joe got it all right so we're going to answer some questions just real quick guys um next month uh, we got our all-day sales training. If you guys are interested, check it out. It's disruptors.com slash sales training. Uh, so Elizabeth Daniel, she says she's a solopreneur, wanted to scale up, and have an, and she has another VA and now needs another me, right? So there wasn't a specific question there, but how would you address that? That was on Facebook. So she's asking specifically about bringing on another, to duplicate herself from a VA? Yeah, and that's like the... <laughs> If we can figure that out, but what advice do you give to someone like that? That's in that situation. Uh, so if I understand the cr question correctly, VAs are a special thing. They're just mm -hmm. a great, I mean, they love the work. They're grateful for it. Uh, so bringing on an additional VA or VAs in general is just a great way to duplicate yourself and just be methodical about it. Find somebody that's super talented and ha shares, you know, interest in helping you build your business and, and uh, you know, making something meaningful for them uh, so that we have one VA that we've had with us for six years, no kidding. And she's obviously making more now than she was six years ago. And she actually has uh, a team underneath her that she helps manage for us. So it's one of those things where you can find some incredible talented people across the, the world and provide them meaningful opportunities to work. And they are they can help you even recruit other people that help get things done. That's one of the things I've always loved. If you can find a really rock star VA. Changes. They can help game. you 
find other Rockstar VAs. Yes. Um, so Austin Williams on Instagram wants to know, what is the biggest income-driven activity? Because I think that's a great point. We talk about it, do more income activities, waiting where they qualify. What, <laughs> what, what is an income activity? You want to share that? Yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that too, Steve. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I would tell you, so in the Joe homebuyer world, I have like do's and don'ts. And one of the default activities is just action. Mm-hmm. Like take action, don't, don't overthink it, just action, right? And so what is the, you know, ultimately strategic marketing, meaningful strategic marketing. So what does that mean? It, it could be web, it could be uh, prospecting, it could be direct mail, but it's, it's strategic marketing is an income generating activity. Um, you know, getting out, you know, opportunities for the phone to ring. Other activities are just the grassroots. In the early days, that income activity might, you might be compelled to just knock on doors, drive for dollars, pin hounds, make phone calls. It's whatever it is that is bringing you closer to your next appointment and in turn your next contract. What yeah. are those things that are taking you to your next uh, uh, contract? And actually, any of the activities after the contract, working with the title company, all those things, those are not income generating activities. That's nope. no pay time. Yeah. So it's realizing what are the things that are actually bringing in money. Yeah, so I look at it, uh, I always like to use the tree model, right? I'm, I'm, I'm like an apple farmer, right? Like my job, the highest income activity for me is shaking the tree really hard to get all those apples to fall. I love right? it. That's the, that's the highest income activity. Everyone dealing with escrow and title, they're picking up the apples, they're taking it to the farm, they're yep. juicing it, they're whatever they're doing with it. That's not income activity. That's monetizing what we've right. done, our activities. Right. But that is the uh, the most important activity is shaking the trees, getting the fruits to fall, and then planting the you know the seeds, whatever. That's the marketing. But for me, the most important activity is, is is closing sales. So being in the living room, or that's the number one for me. And the number two is prospecting. If you're not prospecting, then Forget about it. No, in, 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 in the early days of your business, you have to be prospecting. <laughs> You've got to learn what it takes to get a deal. Yeah. And you have to have those conversations. Yeah. If yeah. You're, and it's something I've said before, uh, is that if you're not good prospecting, then you're going to suck in the living room. <laughs> Bro, it's so true. And that's the crazy thing. It goes back to that comment before. It's simple but not easy. Yeah. Nobody wants to do what it takes to succeed. I shouldn't say nobody. Too frequently... They want to have the 10 or 15 or 20 or $30,000 profit. They want the Lambos. <laughs> they want the Lambo, the green one or purple one, whatever's rolling around here in Phoenix. But, but are they willing to do the activity to get there, right? Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. Uh, all right. So um, let's see what we got here. Um, what else was there? Uh, so Dom, what should I do if a seller wants to sign but won't because they don't know where to go once the house sold? And this is, this is Instagram, Dom Brandon. This is a question a lot of people are asking. Yeah. So love to hear your take on this. So I love this, um, Steve. So I don't know if we want to role play or or just kind of talk through this, but you're the seller, right? And you're saying, look, I I can't go anywhere. You know, I I don't know where I can go. So my question to you, Steve, is, all right. Well, let me ask you this. And I love this. The if question. So if we're able to help you find a solution or a place to move to, are you willing to put an agreement together to sell your home? I've got to start there because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, is that an excuse you're using or are they legitimately, I mean, are they really going to sell their home yeah. if we find a solution for that? And if they can give me a con- concrete definitive answer that, no, no, we're going to sell if I can find a solution, then you better get in the trenches. We had, no kidding, Corey, Northern Utah franchise, the dude legit put a house under contract with a seller, went into a home and negotiated a purchase price with the new, with the seller of the other home with him. Mm-hmm. 
settled on that agreement and he's putting that seller in that home. You gotta do what it takes to succeed. You gotta go find them a solution. Because ultimately with any of these purchase contracts, it could be a home, it could be any type of obstacle. They have to be able to visualize plan B. They have to be able to taste and touch what's going to, you know, what it's gonna be like to live in the new, uh, or, or to be able to transition out of the property. Yeah. If you can help them see plan B, you can get plan A done, which is get the purchase contract. Yeah, so, and I think that's a great point. You gotta do what it takes, you know, and some and sometimes right now, there maybe there is nothing you can do. You know, I know Salt Lake is a crazy market. There's not a lot of homes. <laughs> and that's one of the underlying questions there, right? Is right. like, sometimes there isn't, you can do. But it's also having an honest conversation with them. Look, I can't get you, you know, this size of home, but here's some alternatives that, might work for you, um, you know, they are within your budget. And yeah. obviously putting in the, the, the homework to figure out if you can help them find a solution. Yeah, and you gotta be a creative deal maker. You gotta figure that out. And I think uh, if you can't, you know, you can ask around maybe there's some other creative deal makers nearby. But yeah, that's one of the toughest things right now in this market. Uh, it was a little rougher, I would say, three months ago. I think it's a little bit easier today. Uh, so Certainly. The, the Cash House Buyers team wants to know, how do you become a part of this franchise? This is on YouTube. Oh, I love it. So I'd love to yeah, visit with you personally and talk with you about uh, Joe Homebuyer, but you can go to thejoeway.com forward slash Steve and uh, you can definitely check out, uh, we can get you in touch, we can get in touch basically and, and talk with you about uh, Joe Homebuyer. Awesome. Um, let's see what else is there. Um, you got a fan in Cody Hallfine, I guess. <laughs> is he on there? He's on What's here. What's up, brother? Um, yeah, so you got, you got a lot of love here. Um, so Kai Nguyen wants to know, what do you do when a seller finds out how much money you're going to be making on the wholesale deal? Ah, oh, that's tough. Um, I like to have a conversation like this as often as I can, Steve. When I'm visiting with the homeowner, I have kind of that tough conversation. Um, you know, Mr. and Mr. Seller, I appreciate working with you. I also think it's my obligation to tell them that I have multiple exit strategies. Hey, look, I might keep this as a rental. I might re rehab this property myself or I actually might partner with somebody and make money immediately on this. I don't try to explain what an assignment agreement is, but I might partner with somebody immediately and be out of the project, but make money uh, you know, immediately. Hmm. Mr. and Mr. Seller, do you care if I make 2,000 or 200,000 and what way I do it as long as I keep all the terms of this agreement? And almost universally they say, I hope you make a million dollars, but as long as you keep these terms of the agreement. So it's just making sure that you address any potential issue. Hey, if anybody stops by that's not me, don't let them in the home. I network with lots of people. There's a possibility that somebody's gonna stop by and say they wanna buy it and, and try to muddy the water. Know that that sort of thing could happen as well. Having these conversations up front will save you a ton of heartache. Yeah, the way I like to describe it in our, in our sales process is building a moat around the castle. Right? There you go. Like no Love one's it. getting in. Love <laughs> all right, it. We gotta defend this at all costs. Uh, Gregory Ballard wants to know, what are some of your tips for hiring an acquisitions agent? Because this is, I think, a lot of people struggle with yeah. this. And we mentioned earlier, it was, it's a hard thing. So what are your tips? So I don't mean to put a plug in there for predictive index. It's a little bit of an investment. We've invested into it with Joe Homebuyer. But the predict, are you familiar with predictive index? We use it too. You love it. Okay. It's, Absolutely. It's an incredible tool, right? You're assessing the behavioral tendencies and the strengths of your candidates. So it's having a tool like that. Uh, you, a lot of people have heard of the Tony Robbins disc assessment. It's different because it's more of a, um, uh, it's not the behavior, it's the... Um, I think it's just more complete. Yes, uh, the predictive index is more complete, yeah. right? And so it's having a tool though that you, you start to leverage the data consistently where you're saying, all right, who am I actually hiring? So first you need to identify what type of personality traits. Uh, that's the difference, personality mm -hmm. traits versus behavior. 
Um, and once you get clear on what type of person you're looking for, obviously I'm looking for somebody that is independent, has the driver mentality. And then as much as important as anything else, I want them to be teachable. Because what I can't do is I can't hire that guy that is, you know, seasoned sales guy, but isn't a sponge to what I believe to be a very specific way of, and successful way of, of doing business. Yeah. But how do you find them? It, it, it takes a lot of hustle. So it's, it's, you know, networking with people. It's getting on LinkedIn and reaching out to people. It's almost like finding a seller. It's prospecting. It's doing those activities that are going to set you up to find people that are in the world that you're, uh, you know, trying to recruit for. I love door-to-door guys Yeah. or gals, somebody that is, that has been in that transactional sales. One of our best guys. Uh, he, he was a solar guy. Yeah. Love him. Um, and, and Gregory, I mean, this is just a plug. There was another podcast we did with uh, Nick Perry. Maybe look back at that one. I think that was, really goes into this in great detail. But I think the big thing is, because it really highlights what you just talked about a moment ago. If you treat finding an acquisition agent like you treat finding a motivated seller, you will find great acquisition agents. Yeah, well said. But if you're going to post on Craigslist or Facebook and just wait for all those leads to come in, it doesn't work just like it doesn't work for finding a motivated seller. So true. Yeah, you got to treat it like you're finding a motivated seller. Let's start with your network and then your network's network. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. It's all the activity. It's a consistent activity. Yep. So let's see if they had anything else. Um, so Elizabeth Daniel, follow question. How do I, how to convince an elderly couple to use a contract? They want just a handshake in cash. She's tried explaining to them for it's further protection. No, we, yeah. Okay, so she's got a seller. She's got a seller who doesn't want to sign a document. They just want to do cash. Okay, Elizabeth, I love I I love that you're experiencing this because you're going to be a rock star and you're going to have success with this and you're going to go get this deal done. But I would tell you that uh, I actually believe that you can navigate this. Uh, I would either hop in a car with them, drive them to your title company, and I'm, I'm I kid you not, just think completely outside the box. Help them really get to a place of comfort. Smell, touch, taste, like how the, the process works. We've actually had a family in the early days, one of my acquisition guys said, Mark, this is a, a dude, he's willing to sell it to us for $25,000 less than the other company if we don't make him sign something. So we tightened up the, the, uh, you know, the, the window of closing and we, so that we didn't have time go by. So it was like a you know, Thursday, Friday, we got title ready. He showed up to title on Monday and at title, you know, he was able to sign the purchase agreement and the closing documents at the same time. But it was a new setting. He was able to, you know, uh, realize, okay, this is a third party it's organization, credible place. credible place. So you've got to get them to smell, touch, taste what it feels like to sell. The, and, and worst case scenario, they'll sign it at the time of closing, which is not ideal. Yeah. Uh, we even had to dumb down our agreement with the help of our real estate attorney. So that it was literally just one paragraph and it had the four or five key points. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad it was with it. I mean, in terms of what his expectation was. Well, I, I love that you came with that, that idea and that's a great answer uh, uh, for her. Um, what I encourage people to do, I and mean, we don't do this often, but every once in a while, there's an ugly document that you need signed yeah. in order to close. Yep. And they're like, how do I present this? How do I do this? How, how do I do that? And like, for me, I tell, tell them, stop overthinking it. Just have them sign it a title. They're signing all these other documents. I mean, you know this from sales, right? Like the best way to get someone to sign like the fourth page is have them sign the first three pages, <laughs> right? If they'll sign yeah. the first three pages, they have absolutely nothing to do with the contract. Right. They'll sign the fourth page. That's right. So I, I think that's a great answer. Yeah, love it. Um, all right. I'm cheering you on, Elizabeth. I, I'd love to hear that that goes well. That's awesome. <laughs> I hope that works. And if it works, let us know. Um, 
Petrovich uh, Instagram. Can I make it in real estate without banks and wholesaling? I'm a, from a different country. So have you helped anyone wholesale outside of the United States? I haven't. Yeah. I get these questions from time to time. And I don't really know how to answer that because it's already different from state to state. It is. <laughs> I can't even imagine a different country. You know, I was uh, in Puerto Rico with my son a few months ago, and uh, I know there it's a U.S. territory, so not a third world country, you know, type thing. But I will tell you, they had for you know, cash for home, or uh, we buy house signs uh, as as we were driving down the road, even in Puerto Rico. So I know people are doing it in um, different parts of the world. I, I just don't know enough about it, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and then Copy Josh wants to know on YouTube: Are you holding on to any properties long term? Absolutely. It makes it incredibly tough right now because the market's so good. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is we'll get a property under contract. And before it even hits my radar as, as the integrator, uh, and, and now I'm really stepped into the role of visionary in lots of aspects of the business. But uh, before it even hits my radar, Steve, it's already out to our cash buyers. And then all of a sudden it comes to my table and it's like, okay, uh, what are the one of the, what exit strategies do we want to execute on here? Do we want to keep it as a rental? Do we want to rehab it? Or do we want to wholesale it now that we're getting offers on it? And we go into some, and they're like, all right, you know, early stages here, we're going to make X amount on, on an assignment. Why don't we keep this as a rental? And then you have some outlier offer because we work so hard to build a robust buyers list, make some crazy offer. And now they talked me out of keeping it. Yeah. Because it's like, there'll be a time in a season, so I'm able to stockpile cash, hopefully, put myself in a really strong financial position so that there's a time in a season I can take on more rentals. We had a property, and um, it was brought to me. I looked at it, and I was like, what do you want to do with this? He was like, I really want to buy it. I really want to buy it. It's a really good area. Right. Right? And um, I was like, I'd be willing to pay a 75K assignment fee to the company for this, right? For me to keep it personally, for my portfolio, I'm willing to pay <laughs> a 75K assignment fee. So that your team can be paid and so that's realizes the revenue. Yeah, yeah right. Because it's two different companies, right? That's right. So I feel comfortable with that. And then the team comes back, it's like, hey, we got an offer. We're gonna, team's, company's going to make 100,000 assignment fee. It's like, I can't match that. <laughs> Sell it. <laughs> We'll get, the money. <laughs> get it out of my face. That's precisely my point. Right now it's hard. So we do keep a couple every year. We brought it, Cody and I took down a duplex recently, some, a couple land projects. Yeah. Land that we're just, you know, we know will be worth more and more over time. So uh, that's not income producing, but we retain some of the, our assets or create these assets uh, with an, a payday uh, down the road. But it's, it's hard. It is hard right now. Uh, so going back to Instagram, Cassie invests. Can you wholesale to your own company? We just kind of touched on it, but you want to explain your company's process on wholesaling to your own company? Uh, that, that idea of if you keep it? Yeah. So for me, I just have to pay a commission to my, my sales guy. So I don't ever end up realizing the revenue. I don't, I don't have my rental uh, holding company pay an actual assignment fee to, mm-hmm. uh, the retail, uh, to the wholesale company. It sounds like you do. We do, yeah. I just cover the assignment fee that they would have made. And, uh, but I like what you, I want to hear how you do it. So you're actually paying... The full fee. Full assignment fee. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, um, my holdings company will actually pay. It, we're ju- I'm just another buyer. I just get, I just get uh, right of first refusal. That's all it is. Okay. Right? I get right of first refusal. So I can buy it or someone else can buy it. And I got a match, right? It's, it's uh, There's no uh, favoritism here, right? Because yeah. if I put myself over the needs of my team, right? Because now they're making less commission. That's never going to work. That's it's, bad. It's not good long-term business. It no. can work short-term. It's not going to be good long-term business. So, yeah. So I pay the full fee because it covers the marketing. It covers the the commissions that everyone's supposed to make, like the deservedly make. That's right. 
Right. But you're not selling them short at all. They don't get discouraged at all when Steve keeps a rental. Right. They know that they're going to be compensated the same. That but they it created that value. sucks that I can't buy as many rentals. <laughs> because you've got buyers offering ridic ridiculous In prices. In this market, absolutely. Yeah. Good problem to have. It's a great problem to have. So then right now in Salt Lake, how much are you, are, are you guys wholesaling at the moment? So we'll wholesale about 60%. Mm -hmm. We'll keep 5-ish, 10%. And then uh, we're, um, you know, rehabbing more than we ever have. We have some really reliable connections to take on projects that, uh, when I say take on projects, I don't pick paint color. I, like, I don't do anything, Steve. I don't, I just write checks or the team writes checks. Mm -hmm. It's not a distraction at all. We got to the point where we had some really reliable connections there. So about, you know, 25 to 30% uh, are uh, doing, you know, minor to major rehabs, depending on the margins. Yeah. So we're going to talk about, a little bit about your business and to be totally clear, this is not Joe Homebuyer numbers. Right? Yes. Yes. Totally clear. Yeah. I cannot quote as a franchise. Yeah. Any These are not franchising numbers. Yeah. For Mark and Cody. Yes. What is your average fee? So right now with the market as robust as it is, it's as high as it's ever been. Right. Um, and uh, right now in Utah, we're averaging over $40,000 in revenue. And again, to be totally clear, that is not a suggested number that franchisees will make right. or anything like that. That's specifically what Cody and I do as a partnership in Utah. Yep. Yeah. And how much are you guys spending on marketing at the moment? We're, we're going to be between forty dollars and $50,000 a month between, you know, callers, expense, if you add all those things up, cost of list, callers, expense, and then direct cost for direct mail and web expense, Facebook, all of those, you know, expenses. And all in all, what is your monthly overhead? Monthly overhead uh, is over $100,000. It it's with overhead. We have a really robust team because remember, we're the infrastructure support to all the franchisees. So we, oh, have, a, we have a heavy team. I have a general manager. I have a, I have a general manager on operations and a general manager on, um, for sales yeah. that oversees both Utah and Texas. Really talented group of people. But because we have such a robust team, yeah, we're about $120,000 a month before we make a dollar. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what keeps you moving i mean again cody that guy is i think he probably wakes up probably doesn't drink any caffeine and he's like flying out of bed <laughs> right so he doesn't true. need any motivation right what is your why so i have four kids and a beautiful wife we've been married 18 years and at the end of the day i just love spending time with them mm -hmm. like my day of a good time is waking up and imagine if i could just if i didn't have any responsibilities at all it would be taking my kids to have experiences so their education would be it would be experiences, visiting a part of the world and serving people. Recently, I actually had an opportunity to go to Puerto Rico. I mentioned briefly about with my son, mm -hmm. and it was the perfect balance of cultural, fun, service. We helped people that had homes damaged from, you know, a couple of years ago, hurricane, and it even had a spiritual element to it uh, through uh, the group that we went. But that was my idea of a good time. To be able to, I mean, I went 10 days, my business still runs, to be able to spend meaningful, memorable activities with my family, that's my why. I mean, that's, I just love it. And I just, my cup gets filled when I go see the world. Like, that's yeah. my idea of a good time. That's awesome. And then what is your biggest struggle today? Business struggle? Uh, my, uh, I, if it's a personal struggle, I was going to say that uh, I really like uh, sweets and I uh, eat like a, uh, you would think that I'd be a lot heavier than I because I, I love food. That's my personal struggle. So but sweet tooth. <laughs> sweet tooth, yeah. No, but from a business struggle, um, it's, you know, learning when to, you know, turn it off. I, I'm one of those guys that like, go, 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 go. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's knowing that, um, 
you know, trusting the team probably. I, I'm probably a, a little bit of a, uh, a guy that wants to have my hands and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really being challenged as a leader to let my guy, you know, the team, the quality people do their thing. Um, but we're scaling. We're heavily in scaling mode with all the franchisees. And that's definitely a struggle, a challenge, but welcomed and exciting. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who was on the show very recently. And he was saying, like, he was complaining to the team, like, why is this all screwed up? And the response from the team was, because you went in there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the problem that we run into <laughs> as right. business owners. That's right. Every once in a while we go in there and now it's like, ah, oh, crap. Um, and then uh, this is Cash home, House Buyers team. If someone has a franchise of Joe Homebuyer, can they still do their own buy and holds? Yes, absolutely. We don't yeah. discourage that um, at all. You know, what? Well, actually, I looked at Homevestors many, many years ago. Uh, I would have been, there was two people in Phoenix at the time, right? Because we had the recession, everyone stopped. Yeah. You know, Homebusters franchise basically died. Subway rescued it. I don't know if you know that story. I didn't know that. No. Yeah, so Subway is the one that actually bought out, you know, their model to rescue it. I knew since, they had a group come in. Yeah, and, so it was Subway. And okay. then they moved on and sold it to someone else. I would have been the number three franchisee, right, in Phoenix back in 2012. Um, Interesting. Because, you know, again, they went from like 25 to two. And they're trying to get me in. I was like, I'll do this, but I need to be able to do my own deals because I'm already wholesaling well, you guys. Like, why would I do this? Right. And that was the, the one thing is like, they're like, no, it doesn't matter where you get, got it from. You have to pay us a franchise. He's like, well, I'm not doing this. Yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah. So uh, obviously, uh, we don't want to discourage franchisees from building their own long-term wealth. And so, no, mm-hmm. you can keep properties. There's a lot of autonomy with our system. You do your own marketing. You're not limited on... Uh, and again, I, I don't want to speak for home investors, but there, we really designed our model so that there was a lot of autonomy, both with marketing so that you could have, you know, create really leverage all our experience and success, but really create your own business that can thrive independently. And to me, thriving means that you're becoming as balanced and successful financially as possible as well. And obviously keeping rentals is a major part of that. Yep. What is your superpower? Dude, I saw this question. I knew you were going to ask me this. I'm like, what is my superpower? And, uh, I, for some reason, I, I default to um, my family. Like, I just love being around them. And if my superpower is uh, I have three daughters and giving them a hard time and just uh, hanging out with them is, I don't know if that's a superpower, but I, I think, I sure hope that my four kids, my my fourth being my oldest son, uh, know that uh, that they mean a lot to me. And, and I don't know, that's probably a cheesy answer. But the truth is, when I thought of this question, I'm like, what is my superpower? We like to surf together. There's mm-hmm. my superpower. We like to surf behind a boat. Mm-hmm. So in Utah, we don't have an ocean. So we've got we to gotta hop on a boat uh, to surf. And uh, that's my superpower. We can do some pretty fun tricks uh, on a wake surfboard. Do you annoy and irritate your kids? Dude, I'm the best at it. That's what I'm saying. That's my su- that, you summarized it well. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I can. <laughs> well, because like, my kids ask, like, why do you always bother? I was like, it's my job. Like, I'm your dad. <laughs> I love it. My, <laughs> my daughter my... started kindergarten today, and I was giving her a hard time about, hey, school got canceled. I, I wish I could tell you that you could be there today. And she's like, Dad, this is like the third time. You know, I told her she couldn't go because the, the teacher called and canceled school. Again, she knows that I'm just bluffing her because mm-hmm. she's so excited about school starting. But that's my job, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's what we were made to do. That's right. Uh, what is the greatest lesson that you've learned? That uh, really becoming a successful business owner is about personal development. Like at the end of the day, um, we owe it to ourselves to become the best versions of ourselves. Um, uh, Matthew Kelly has that book. Um, well, look it up. Matthew Kelly, why is the name slipping my mind? But it, it, the premise of the book is becoming the best version of, you, of yourself. And I've shared the author's name. And so definitely look into that. But 
I'm convinced that that's one of the most valuable lessons I've learned is that we're, I mean, from a spiritual sense, and I don't know how deep we want to go there, but I actually do believe that we're intentionally on earth for the purpose of making a difference. Mm -hmm. And if I can become the best version of myself as husband, father, business owner, and I can do, you know, give back, do different things like that. Um, and obviously I've got a long way to go. I'm not, you know, but you know, what am I doing to just refine myself, you know, and life's life's to be enjoyed as well. Um, but it's, it's, what am I doing to, I'm learning that developing as a leader is, is absolutely critical to being a successful business owner. And then that journey never ends. It never ends, but it's a fun journey if if you stop to enjoy it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what is your favorite, best or most interesting failure? Uh, most interesting or favorite failure. Um, Ooh, I love that question. I would have to tell you, we had a, um, a uh, property that, uh, well, I'm trying to think my most interesting, I mean, Steve, I really want this to be like a, it's the end of the podcast. I got to have something super interesting. Well, this one, uh, pot, uh, property that I'm thinking of, it fell apart on us pretty quick in the sense that, uh, it needed to have an entirely new water line put in. And for us, the experience of just realizing that we're not invincible, and I mean, I was convinced I'm never going to lose uh, money on a property because I'm just going to be super prudent with the numbers. I'm going to crush them all of this. And we learned pretty quick that you do enough deals, you lose money. And we never could have, for, uh, you know, saw that coming, that it needs an entirely new water line. But I'm talking like hundreds of yards out to the street. It was on a private road. We beca- it became pretty clear pretty quick that uh, you're not invincible and uh, that you're going to learn from some of these. And, and unfortunately, that means lose money at, at some point. How much did you lose on that one? Actually, we ended up only losing like seven grand because the margin started out pretty, uh, pretty uh, beautifully. But the biggest loss really was time. Yeah. Unfortunately, is uh, more than anything, the distraction was the killer. It yeah. was a big distraction. We've had some properties like, should we have made that much money? Probably not. But because the project took longer and right now this market is appreciating like crazy, <laughs> like it covers up your mistakes. It does. Yeah. Is there a book you've gifted more than any other? Uh, Leading an Inspired Life by Jim Rohn. Love that guy. Isn't that incredible? That book's incredible too. It's like nuggets just throughout. Uh, It's written in a format that is like incremental little paragraphs or one or two pages. So you can pick it up and within five minutes a day, uh, you can grasp a concept without having to feel like you have to read cover to cover. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's fascinating because he is, you know, uh, Darren Hardy's mentor, right? Who is my mentor. Uh, He's... Tony Robbins, like Tony Robbins used to work for him as a teenager. Like this guy made massive ripples right. in the personal development world. It's amazing what he's accomplished. And wasn't he just like a normal dude? Like He was, was a normal salesperson who just had a knack for telling stories. He's kind of like Zig Ziglar, yeah. right? But he could explain a difficult concept, um, or not even a, a difficult concept. He, he could make a concept sound really simple and funny. Yep. Right. So, you know, Gary Vee talks about if you can be funny and educational, then, you know, you, you're going to have massive uh, impact. You know, you'll have a ton of followers or whatever. Yeah. Jim Rohn was funny and educational. He's incredible. He was an incredible yes. human being. So uh, I want you to think about what you le- want to leave the listeners with while I make a quick, a few quick announcements. Guys, if you get value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. That helps the algorithm and it helps the algorithm reach more people and we can create. 100 millionaires. Uh, we do have our all-day sales training coming up September 24th. If you're interested, go to disruptors.com slash sales training. And next week, we got my buddy Sam Prim coming in. He's going to talk about how he's built a real estate empire 
with other people's money, right? Which is the best way to do it because you're not jeopardizing any of your own right. money. Um, so what are some last thoughts you want to leave listeners with? Well, I just, I love that uh, and applaud your listeners for investing time to, to uh, build in the future and listening to this podcast. I love that uh, you said a hundred millionaires. Yeah. That's, ex- I mean, this, this journey that you're putting people on, I mean, that's exciting. Uh, so, I mean, if I were to put a bow on anything I, I said today is um, just, I'm excited for people's journey. I'm excited that they can, uh, you know, see the fruits of their labors. I just feel fortunate to have found uh, real estate. Um, you know, I wish I could say that the success, success of Joe Homebuyer is exclusively because of the great people and the team. No, it's, we tapped into an incredible vehicle mm-hmm. of real estate. I just yeah. feel so fortunate to be in real estate. Applaud and encourage people to just stick with it. Like at the end of the day, if you can stay with it, it can be an incredibly rewarding thing for you and your family. And it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the hard work. And, uh, and a plug for you that, I mean, this is an incredible platform. I mean, the people that you put on the show mm-hmm. that can share these insights, like, if, and you, I mean, you made that declaration at the beginning of this call. If you listen to this podcast, you will be successful if you go out and implement. And mm-hmm. I, I'll just, uh, compliment that, uh, confident, uh, declaration that I believe yeah. that to be true. With consistency. With which, consistency. Which is what you said was the biggest challenge for most entrepreneurs. Yes. Consistency. Uh, how can someone find out more about you, Joe Homebuyer, whatever? Yes. Uh, definitely visit us at thejoeway.com forward slash Steve. Awesome. Thejoeway.com. Yep. Thank you very much. Hey, my man. Thank you. A lot of fun. Thank you guys for watching. See you all next week. Thank you. Yeah, see we real estate disruptors Can't nobody touch us And yeah, we about to give you game Shout out to Steve Train Real estate disruptors They cannot touch us And yeah, we about to give you game Shout out to Steve Train Jump on the Steve Train We about to give you game REI's flowing through my veins And you don't have to look no further See right here, you gon' learn everything Shout out to Steve Train Jump on the Steve Train We real estate disruptors Disruptors, can't nobody touch us. And yeah, we about to give you game. Shout out to Steve Train. Real estate disruptors, they cannot touch us. And yeah, we about to give you game. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We about to give you game. R.E.I.'s flowing through my veins And you don't have to look